Hello and welcome to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast episode number 41. This week I'm talking to a lady called Dorothy Wade and she works as a chartered health psychologist in the critical care unit at UCH in London. She is also another lady who is presenting at this year's Intensive Care Society State of the Art Conference, which as I speak is a week today in 2015. So let's go. Yeah, so this is a fairly quick release after the last podcast, uh, podcast number 40. The main reason being that the State of the Art Conference, the Intensive Care Society State of the Art Conference, is next Monday, a week today. And I wanted to get this podcast out because Dorothy is another person who's presenting at the conference and we just wanted to do some pre-conference chats about what they're going to say at the conference itself. So let's go ahead and listen to the conversation that we had. You are presenting on the afternoon of the second day and the title of your presentation is Trauma and Stress in ICU, Can We Make an Impact? And that caught my eye because I've been having several conversations recently with a lady called Carol Hodgson, um, another lady called Fiona Moffat, both of whom are also presenting at the State of the Art Conference. And they have been looking into various ways in which we can reduce length of stay by getting patients out of bed a little bit sooner than we otherwise seem to be. Now, yeah. one of one of the biggest problems that patients seem to suffer from during their stay in intensive care is delirium, and there's lots of research out there as to what we should try and do about that. But I suspect from some of the papers of yours that I've just been looking at, you're also very interested in not just um, the effects whilst they're in ITU, but also some of the effects once they leave the intensive care. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Okay. So just I just wanted to discuss some of the things that um, you're going to talk about in the conference itself. Um, I just wondered whether you might be able to um, break some of those things down. What, what, what specifically is it do you think that we should be doing to help these patients? What are the causes of the problems that potentially we might be able to do something about in the intensive care? And what kind of things are we doing or can be done once they leave the intensive care to help them? Yeah. I suppose my work has focused actually on what we can do while they're in intensive care and just maybe at the point where they're leaving in intensive care. Um, Because some of the research that's been done shows that it's the acute stress and distress that that people suffer while they're in intensive care that seems to predict that some of those people might go on to develop longer-term psychological problems such as um, flashbacks, post-traumatic stress, depression and clinical anxiety. So we've been very keen to see if there might there may be things that we can do while the patients are actually in intensive care to, to possibly prevent these longer term effects. And presumably you've actually spoken to patients who have had experience of intensive care and have consequently suffered from some of these things both whilst in intensive care and once they're leaving or once they've left sorry um do you have you followed them up um several months after their experience in intensive care um yes i mean i've done that both in research and working clinically so in research uh, we did a paper where we've we followed up patients for three months in, in the first paper we did um and then we found actually we found that we were quite sort of shocked in that piece of research that we found that more than half the patients were suffering from 
post-traumatic stress or depression or anxiety after three months. Um, but we also see patients in a follow-up clinic at, at University College Hospital and many of them coming, come back to tell us about the, the traumatic experiences they've been having. Although others come back and say that you know they're fine and that they they had a really good they had really good care and that they're grateful to the staff. Okay, that's interesting, isn't it? Is that that's the, I'm looking at a paper in front of me now, which is investigating risk factors for psychological morbidity three months after intensive care. Is that the one you're referring to? Um, yeah, that was one of them. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, and you say that some patients are coming back with um, some stories of um, depression and post-traumatic stress almost, um, and some patients aren't. Is it easy to differentiate what the causes might be why some patients are having these problems and some patients aren't, or is that difficult to tease out? Um, it can be difficult to tease out, and there probably are a few factors like um, some people may have um, more of a predisposition to to be to become more anxious and more stressed. But generally, I think we can link it back quite often to what happens in, in, in intensive care. So I think the patients who had a particularly stressful time when, when they were there, um, they may be more at risk. But also patients who, um, we do find that patients who've had these really frightening hallucinations and delusions that are quite, we know are quite common in intensive care, sometimes those patients, they go on and they will have flashbacks and nightmares about, specifically about the hallucinations and delusions. Uh, so even months later, they're still having hallucinations about, um, or sorry, flashbacks to hallucinations. Um, about being tortured or poisoned or put on trial or some of the um, hallucinations they had at intensive care just keep coming back to haunt them. Hmm. Okay. And one of the things that you talk about is some of the sources of stress in critical care as well. And yeah. what particular, what, what are the major sources? Is this something that's been fed back to you from the patients themselves? They tell you that these are the sources? Yeah, been fed back from the patients and both the patients that, you know, we talk to every day, but also patients who've given interviews for research and the same similar sort of themes come up so I think there's so many things there's the noise in intensive care it can be very loud and unexpected the noise of alarms and machinery um, the look of the machinery I think it looks very alien you know it looks quite alien to people who are not used to working in intensive care and then being actually connected up to all that machinery by lines and tubes and candelai um, then you have quite often and you have unnatural light, quite harsh unnatural light. Sometimes patients can't see windows, have no access to any daylight. Um, mm. That in turn can lead to uh, sleep deprivation, uh, sensory deprivation, and then um, quite often the environment itself is very harsh and clinical and quite stark. And I think it's, I think it can be, you know, quite a frightening place just to be to be looking around at. Um, I think I think you're quite right. One of the biggest things that I, does annoy me at most intensive cares I go to, there's very little actual natural light comes into these departments, isn't there? They're designed. I mean, we, we the department I work in, we do have lots of windows, but the patients are facing away from all of them, yeah. um, so they never actually get to see whether it's daytime or nighttime. Yeah. Well, you can always turn the beds round. <laughs> we try to turn the beds round, or or make and, and then try to make sure they can have some little trips out the unit if they're at that phase, even if they take them, you know, in their bed. Uh, yeah. just sometimes seeing a bit of the outside world can help. Um, yeah. And another stressor, I think, is, you know, perhaps other patients. Um, sometimes, you know, if you're in an open way, you may, an open ward, um, you know, you can see other people really in distress. You may even, some people, you may even see other people dying. 
Um, at night, you'll hear people sort of shouting, groaning. Sometimes you hear um, relatives crying, screaming if somebody has died. So if you think about that, particularly at night time, you know, it, it sounds like a bit of a sort of vision of hell, really, that you could be in uh, listening to all this, this frightening. Uh, yeah, and I can imagine because, you know, one of the other things that you refer to as well is that the the, the use of sedatives and psychoactive drugs. Yes. If you're um, coming in and out of a sedated state, um, I, I think anyone who's probably had an operation knows that those first few seconds of coming out of an anaesthetic are quite disorienting. And you do remember, I, I know from my experience, that you do remember what you hear first rather than what you see. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would imagine that it's the same for these anaesthetized, not anaesthetized, but Sedate. depending on <laughs> sedated Certainly, although uh, there is evidence out there that some of them are actually anaesthetized as well, but that's a whole other discussion, um, that they are going to be very, um, some of this interaction that's going on around them is going to play a great part in their recovery and potentially it's something that they're going to remember for many years to come. Yeah, um, no, it does seem, I think traditionally probably patients have been too heavily sedated in intensive care and I think there's a, you know, there's, there are moves now that say that people are less heavily sedated. But I think quite often people are, you know, still do receive quite um, a cocktail of sedative psychoactive drugs. And, you yeah. know, I think that has a lot that can have, you know, quite a profound effect, as you say, on what you hear and what you see. You may be very disorientated, so you may actually have no idea where you are and you're trying to make sense of all these strange things going on in your environment. Mm. And often people, you know, jump to, to the worst conclusions that they must have been kidnapped or people are, they think the staff are, somehow jailers that are there to hurt them uh, because you know they are in this confused disoriented state and of course the problem is that it can be minutes but actually often it can be days and and in some cases it can be weeks and as they you know sometimes for various clinical reasons they're going to be coming in and out of a sedated state as well so i would imagine sometimes there's there's possibilities that they're just going to keep re-experiencing the same delusion stroke nightmares as they then come back out of the sedated state again so this is something they could experience again and again and again during their ITU time. Yes particularly patients who do become um, delirious as you mentioned delirium tends to be fluctuating so you'll have periods when everyone thinks oh they're fine you know they're very lucid but then then you can become delirious again and have hallucinations again and as I say quite often that happens at night time I think because once it's dark, you don't have the normal stimuli and the normal cues to, so people are likely to become more confused again at night. And of but course, delirium can manifest itself in slightly different ways as well, can't it? You know, you can have a very agitated, delirious patient, or you can have the less agitated but still delirious patient. It doesn't necessarily agitation doesn't necessarily define delirium, does it? No, no, you can have the opposite sort of effect where people become very um, sluggish and don't move around at all, and they seem quite withdrawn Um, and that's sometimes called psychoactive delirium Um, I think in lots of ways we don't know that much about delirium what causes it and why there are all these different manifestations but certainly you can find out that a patient who appeared very perhaps nobody's bothered too much because they seemed quite quiet and um, docile but actually you know they've been suffering the same sorts of um, terrifying experience but they've decided the best thing is to keep very quiet and not tell anyone about it and not show any signs and some of these um, delusions can become quite complex as well, can't they? Uh, I mean, do they do they 
do they tend to rely on patients' previous experiences or can they just be completely random for these patients that they can have delirium, they can have episodes of very strange encounters and experiences that aren't necessarily related to who or what or, or, or what they are? Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think um, occasionally, like I, I was spoke to a woman recently who saw had very frightening delusions where she saw dead babies around her bed. And she also thought there was um, a sort of factory in the basement where they were manufacturing um, babies with disabilities. And she thought it was a scam uh, to get sort of disability benefits. But it all turned out that she had she had just, uh, while she was in hospital, her grandchild had been born. So she was somehow very worried about children and babies. And that, that element then got woven into the, the nightmare. But often... Um, People just have very, there are very typical uh, types of delusions that you hear about, and it doesn't really seem to depend on your past. It's um, everyone has a very, you know, a similar type of um, experience. So, for example, a very common one is that the staff are all in a conspiracy against you. They're, yeah. They've kidnapped you, and they're trying to steal your blood or your organs or something like that. Another one is um, quite a lot of delusions about aliens and thinking that you've been taken away by aliens taken yeah. to a, a, an alien place uh, so often people think they're in they're in one of the world wars and they think they're on a battleship at sea with people bombing them so the common theme is that they're all very threatening situations where you feel you know a great, great sense of danger but they seem it must to be, be quite uh, often quite unrelated to anything anything in your past that must be so frightening and you know we wonder sometimes why patients don't progress as well as we would like them to i mean if you were having those kinds of what essentially we would describe as nightmares almost mm. you know constantly throughout the day that must be a very frightening experience i would have thought and one of the things that the the, the phrases that comes up quite commonly is a uh, post-traumatic stress disorder now i i'm not that familiar i've obviously heard the term but i'm not actually familiar with its true definition what what actually is post-traumatic stress disorder is there is there a certain criteria that needs to be fulfilled in order for that to be defined yeah there are three or four different criteria but i think the most characteristic one um are um intrusive memories or flashbacks so that's where you'll go back to relive a, a past experience that you had. Um, and it, you, know, you, you really live it as if it's happening again. So you might have the physical sensations, the emotional feelings, um, and the sights and sounds of, of, of the trauma that you may have suffered in the past. Um, there's also, there are some other symptoms that go along with it, um, such as very negative thoughts and mood, quite often anger and irritability, um, and often a sense of trying to avoid people go out their way to avoid um, anything that reminds them of that past trauma. So, for example, in this case, patients might try not, you know, they don't want to come back to the intensive care unit. They, they don't like to go anywhere near the hospital. Mm. That could, could um, make them start, yeah, trigger um, reliving of the experience. And one of your studies as well, I noticed that... Um, 88% of critical care patients with post-traumatic stress disorder um, were having um, flashbacks that were from the um, hallucinatory or delusional um, element of their stay in ITU rather than the real memory. So they're not having flashbacks of what actually happened in ITU, but they're having flashbacks of their delusions and their scary episodes. 
Yeah, I found that very interesting because I suppose classically in PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, it's about reliving yeah, real events that happened to you. And you might relive them in a rather fragmentary way, not exactly as they happened, um, but they usually do relate to something that definitely really happened. Whereas mm. in this case, um, I mean, it was a qualitative piece of research. It was a small sample of patients. So although we say 88%, it was 88% of a small number of patients. Mm. However, in that, that group of patients, most of them, um, their flashbacks were to frightening hallucinations and delusions and not to real things that happened to them in intensive care, possibly because they can't remember very much, you know, um, very many real events that happened to them. And the hallucinations are much more vivid than yeah. mine. Absolutely. So some of the effects of this this post-traumatic stress disorder or even um, because we're not necessarily saying that all survivors of ITU come out with a post-traumatic stress disorder, far from it. But some of the some of the um, outcomes for these critical care survivors, what what kind of problems are they coming away with that we can perhaps associate with the experience of the intensive care? Yeah. um, Do you mean particularly the psychological outcomes? Yeah, definitely, Um, definitely. Well, as I said, there's the post-traumatic stress that we've already discussed. Um, I I think the thing is that people can react to stress in very different ways. So um, some people who've been through stress or trauma will have post-traumatic stress disorder. Others may um, just be more likely to become depressed. Um, So people who become depressed, they may be... um, you know, staying at home all the time, not wanting to go out, not really trying to um, get back to their former social life. They may be having a lot of conflict with their families. Um, They may just not be engaging in very much activity at all. Um, So those would be people who are reacting with depression. Otherwise, other people might become more anxious. So you could have a generalized anxiety disorder where you just worry excessively about everything. Um, you can't stop being nervous, anxious, and worried. Those okay. are probably some of the some of the main problems. And as I say, you do sometimes find that people, because those problems are getting in conflict with their family, because um, nobody was expecting it was going to be like this. The family thought they would get better more quickly, and the family might say they seem to have really changed. They don't seem to be their old selves. And the patients themselves may feel that the recovery was much slower than they expected. They they expected that quite often people think they'll go home and they'll be able to do everything they could before straight away, whereas they find that it's really hard to climb the stairs or get their appetite back. So sometimes the slowness of the physical recovery also will have you know impact on their psychology yeah most definitely i was speaking to carol hodgson about this a couple of, uh, about a month ago and she was saying that you know there's there's actually quite a, a reasonably large percentage of people who leave the intensive care unit who never return back to their full pre-intensive care function mm-hmm. and there's an awful lot of them who don't go back to work i mean that is yeah. muddied by the fact that if you have an ITU stay and you're perhaps three or four years away from retirement, I dare say that that ITU stay might actually bring your retirement forward anyway because you probably think, well, that's probably enough for me. Yeah. Um, but the, it, an ITU stay does have can have a massive impact on the rest of somebody's life, mm. can't it? And I would imagine that the psychological impact as well as the physical impact is is probably just as, if not more important, in the long term because potentially they might be able to get over the psych the 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 physical impact, but the psychological impact might be something that lives with them for a lot longer. Um, yes, it could. We do we do hear about people who are suffering 
mapping the psychological impact even years later, but we don't really have very good epidemiology on how many or what proportion that is. I mean, I'm getting from what you're saying that this is an area that just needs an awful lot more investigation. The the nature of it, I suspect, means that probably it's going to always, almost always necessitate a qualitative study uh, style rather than a quantitative one. Is this something that's very hard to quantify? I think probably, I think you probably can quantify it in terms of, you know, finding out how many people are being affected. And I know there is a big study called ICON, I think, which is tracking the psychological outcomes of thousands of patients in the UK. Um, So it'd be really interesting to hear the results of those. ICON, as in I-C-O-N? I believe so, yes. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm going to have a look at that. So we've talked about what causes the problem. We've talked about the impacts that it has. What can we as practitioners in the intensive care unit do about this? Yeah, well, um, I think there's a a lot we can do. Unfortunately, there's not much evidence there about what we can do, um, because I think that's where the research needs to head now, is to um, looking into interventions and what works and what doesn't work. But while we're waiting for for those studies to to be carried out and to report, um, I think in the meantime, I think there's lots of ways that you can look at making the environment um, a bit more healing and therapeutic so you can think about using art color sort of nature imagery uh, making sure patients have access to pleasant sounds like music or nature sounds Um, you can give them radios or ipads Uh, you can introduce um, complementary therapies in cicu like sort of massage aromatherapy so I think there's a, a lot of ways that you can really, you know, quite inexpensively um, improve the environment for patients without having to do a complete refit. Um, but the other really important thing that I think is that you give, um, you make sure um, that staff give patients time to talk and that they take an interest in patients as human beings rather than as sort of bodies with um, diseases happening to them. And I think all patients should 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 get a chance at some point to be asked what they're what they're worried about, what their concerns are, and that people in this sort of busy day have time to just sit with the patients and give them that opportunity to talk. Yeah, I, I think, think unfortunately you don't have to be a psychologist to do that. I think. Um, no, absolutely not. I think unfortunately one of the problems is that communicating with the intensive care patient can be sometimes a bit of a frustrating process, can't it? Because um, for, for for many different reasons, if they've got a tracheostomy, they're, they're trying to mouth the words oh, yeah. to you. And some, peop- some people are much better at that than others. Some people can say very clearly, you can understand what they're trying to say to you, and some people just don't seem to be able to do it. And the whole process can become very frustrating. You give them a pen and they can't write because sure. they haven't got the strength anymore. Um, and I think communication with the patient sometimes takes a bit of a backseat over all the other jobs that are being done in the intensive care unit. But my, my feeling is, and I'm sure you probably would agree, that communication with the patient should probably be near the top of the agenda rather than down towards the bottom rather than as an afterthought. And yeah. um, I, I'm ashamed to say that I think sometimes that communication with the patient is almost an afterthought. Um, you'll communicate with them if they try to communicate with you, but it's not something that necessarily we're very proactive about. Yeah, no, I think unfortunately that is true. And as you say, yeah, a, a lot of patients will say um, afterwards that one of the worst parts for them was not being able to communicate. So whatever you're going through, if you can communicate with someone about it, then 
then it's a, a bit better if you can share the experience. So it is a quite a common theme in qualitative studies in film that patients just say not being able to communicate was, was so awful and so frightening. So as I say, I think you need, um, yeah, if we prioritised it, then we can look into all the ways that we can help people communicate, even if they are still on a ventilator or they have a tracheostomy. Um, I know in our ward we have all these communication charts, but quite often they're just not used, and then everyone says, oh, what happened to those communication charts? We used to use those. So it needs a constant sort of reminder to keep that going. And then, but then there's a, there's a time as well, obviously, that is quite difficult to have a lengthy communication at, at that point in the treatment. But usually as people are weaning and getting better, then um, again, there are a lot of opportunities that, that people could have to talk through what's happened to them that don't always happen. And I think, again, should be prioritised that part of the recovery process should be just people talking to you and giving you a chance to, to explain what went on for you and help you get, get over it and get through it. Absolutely. And uh, you, you must forgive me because one of the things I meant to ask you at the beginning of the entire process was just to discuss your role in the intensive care because you are a psychologist. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I'm a health psychologist. Um, so my role can be um, talking to patients in the way that we just spoke about. Um, patients who are really very distressed, I'll go and um, just sit with them and talk through what's been going on for them. It can be supporting families because families are often, as you know, very, very upset at what's happening. And um, also do some staff support work because it's quite a stressful place to work as well as to, to be a patient. Uh, so we run some support groups and some stress management sessions uh, to give the, chance, the staff a chance to talk about um, uh, their sort of ups and downs as well. Um, then I think it's being a member of the team going to you know multidisciplinary ward rounds and uh, being part of the long-term ward round. So trying to sort of um, remember those issues that might not be so central um, in the sort of medical plan, but reminding everyone about sleep, reviewing the psychoactive drugs, um, thinking about the patient's psychological state, the long-term plans, their motivation to get involved in rehab. Um, on issues like that. Excellent. And, and so, just to go back to the staff support groups, what kind of issues do the staff generally come up with that you that you um, will hear with regularity? Sometimes they're very concerned. Um, they've been very upset by certain patients who've died. Maybe particularly if it's very young patients. Um, quite often, you might have um, hematological patients who are very young and who've, who've, who've died. And I think a lot of some staff who've got to know those patients well. Can, take, can find that very hard to deal with. Um, at other times, it's almost the opposite problem where um, you, staff sometimes feel that they've had to keep somebody alive and, and um, they feel that they're undergoing treatments that perhaps are, are futile and uh, are just prolonging agony. So sometimes staff would like to talk about, about that. Sometimes mm. it's more just the day-to-day -day things of you know workload, um, conflict between each other, Sometimes it's conflict between nurses and doctors, and it can be quite good to get nurses and doctors talking together about their sort of mutual stresses and understanding more what the what you know what they what what stresses them both and how they can perhaps resolve it together. So is this um, this a role you've been involved in for some time? On is it in uh, a particular critical care unit? Um, yeah, it's at University College Hospital. I've been there for about five years. Right. Okay. So, 
quite a while. Excellent. So I'm very much looking forward to your presentation at the uh, state-of-the-art conference. Um, are you polished off with it now? Are you happy with um, what you've got to deliver and practiced, etc.? I haven't practiced yet, but I think I'm quite happy with my slides. And yeah, I'll look forward to, to um, giving the talk on the day and, and talking to the audience about their ideas. So I think Dorothy raises some very interesting points in that chat that we had. Uh, I've linked to a lot of the publications that we refer to. Uh, so the Icon study, for example, I've found the link to, and it all makes for very interesting reading. And I think it relates well to some of the previous podcasts that I've um, had with people like Louise Rose, Carol Hodgson, and Fiona Moffat. And this is, like I said at the beginning, a lady who's presenting at the Intensive Care Society State of the Art Conference. And that's really kind of what I want to cover a little bit now. Um, some of the things that are going to be happening at the state of the art. I appreciate if you're not going to be there that this may not have been a fascinating value to you. Um, but I just want to cover some of the things that we are going to be talking about just so you know some of the discussions that are being had. So that hopefully if you do think about it, you can come and join us next year if it's too late for you to come and see us this year. And we have worked quite hard. Um, well, certainly Ganesh and many of the committee have worked quite hard at making this conference a bit of a lively one uh, with lots of interaction and some social media involvement as well. And I guess if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are a bit of a social media user, um, albeit you may not be as active on Twitter and Facebook as some of the others. But even if you're only mildly active, I think you're going to find the state of the art conference this year uh, a very valuable one and hopefully one that's been a little bit updated as well. So some of the sessions that I particularly wanted to focus on that I think might be of great interest to the critical care practitioners uh, and to the critical care nurses as well. Um, there's one on the afternoon of day one, which is about muscle wasting in critical illness. Um, and that's got three sessions on it. No, I beg your pardon. That's got four sessions on it. Uh, the first one is about patient experience and uh, the second one is scientific background, the known unknowns and that's with somebody called Zudin Putekeri. Sorry if I've just butchered his name. Uh, and the third session is the basic science, what do we know? And then the fourth one, traditional research, where are we heading? Um, and this is just about what happens presumably to the muscles in critical care when the patients are a long-term patient in there. We also go on to then follow that in on the same day with early detection of critical illness. And this really is about early warning and um, early warning scores and making an impact and early intervention in acute kidney injury. Um, and so that's uh, going to be discussions that about how we can in, um, intervene with our patients at an earlier point um, in their pathway, either before they get to the intensive care unit and also when they um, are patients within the intensive care unit and some of the interventions that we can we can get there earlier with. Following on from that, the morning of the second day, and this is something that I focused on particularly because this is becoming an interest of mine, is the early mobilisation workshop. And that has got a gentleman called Eddie Fan, who's well known in the critical care research world, and he's going to be talking about early rehabilitation. And that's followed by Carol Hodgson and Fiona Moffitt, both of whom I've spoken to in podcast 39 um, and 38, I believe it was. So you need to go and listen to those podcasts if you want to know what they're going to be talking about. And if you're going to be at the conference, go and listen to them as well. On the morning of the third day, we're going to be talking about critical care outreach or medical emergency teams. Rinaldo Belomo is going to be talking about medical emergency teams and giving us a global update. We call them critical care outreach teams uh, traditionally in this country or certainly in uh, the departments I've worked in. 
Um, so he's going to be giving us a global uh, position. Um, and then uh, we're going to have Sarah Quinton, who's a lady who I, I, I've worked with in the past, and she uh, is part of the National Outreach Forum in this country as well. Um, and she's going to be talking about UK practice, where we are now as well, and um, how that's changed and progressing for the future. Then later on in the morning of the third day, we're going to be talking about developing non-medical careers in critical care. Um, and that really relates to the critical care practitioner role. And as you know, that's something that I've been um, involved in. It's led by, or it's chaired by myself and Anna Batchelor. Anna was very involved with the Faculty in Intensive Care Medicine and the development of the critical care practitioner role and the curriculum that has been developed as a consequence. Um, and she's going to be talking about emerging patterns in the workforce um, Sarah Quinton again will be talking about setting up a service because she was very involved in setting up the service in uh, the hospital I worked in at the heart of England and then Carol Boulanger who is the chair of the National Association of Advanced Critical Care Practitioners is going to be talking about implementation of critical care practitioners the UK view and then finally Carol and Fiona Carol Hodgson and Fiona Moffat are going to be talking about why you would go into research and we're going to have a bit of a panel discussion about that. So you can see there's a lot going on and they're just some of the sessions. There's many, many more. There's a whole three days. I'm going to be a busy chap next week. I'm going to be carrying a microphone around with me. So as I say, if you do see me there, I may well stick a microphone under your nose. I hope you won't be offended and I may quote you in pre um, future podcasts. So I'm going to be quite busy and I'm really looking forward to it. This is the first big conference that I've been directly involved with and I'm very grateful to Ganesh for inviting me. It's been a great experience so far and I, as I say, really looking forward to it. I'm not going to keep you much longer. One other thing I wanted to say, and I've said this for the last few weeks, is that um, I run this website and this podcast um, for free. It does have some costs incurred, not big, but I still have to pay them. You could help me out. I put some Amazon links on my website at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. If you were to buy uh, some of the books that I've got on resources, or if you just click on the link and go to Amazon, um, when you buy something through Amazon, I get a little cut. It doesn't cost you any extra at all. It makes no impact on your purchases, other than I get a little commission from Amazon, and that just helps me keep the costs down perhaps attend future conferences and things so I'd be really grateful if you bear that in mind in the future um, that would help me out an awful lot thanks for listening again thanks for putting me in your ears thanks for being a wonderful audience and I'll speak to you again soon bye bye you've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner if you would like to comment on any of today's topics find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk tweet us at ccpractitioner Find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. I